0: Hey there, before we get started, just a little disclaimer, the following episode is going to be based on a topic that some people may find a little sensitive, that is Black history, faith communities, non-belief, and the way those things all play on each other. With that said, we welcome you, but if you feel like you may want to put this off for another time when you're ready to go down that rabbit hole, this is a good time to put it in the saved folder and come back whenever you're ready. Otherwise, I'm your host, Roger. Let's go. Welcome back to where we're headed. On today's episode, we're going back to the early liberation and abolitionist movements in the U.S., the free thought heroes, and later the black civil rights movement heroes that made it all happen. Plus, author and professor Christopher Cameron joins us.
1: Free thought stories. Gender, politics, blackness, education, doubt, critique, science,
0: achievement, engineering, Africa, America. And more America. Humanism was able to substantively, substantively develop the uh, Black intellectualism and activism throughout the United States. And a lot of people were some of the most important individuals in the history of uh, Black people in the United States,
1: and they were human It's
0: 1964. Carnegie Hall. Nina Simone is there opening her show with this song. What she's brought with her is rage at the lynching of Emmett Till, the grief of his mother, the 16th Street bombing of the Birmingham Baptist Church. There's no joke about what she's getting ready to sing. A song that would be banned from all the southern radio stations and become an anthem for civil rights. It's Mississippi Goddamn. Nina Simone is just one of many black artists whose life and work illuminate the tradition that connects black art and the struggle for freedom and liberation. From Harriet Tubman announcing her arrival to Southern Plantations, to Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, to the founding of the Black Lives Matter movement by Patrice Coolers. Black artists have long-shouldered a heavy burden. Of telling the truth about a society that's still unwilling to admit what it really feels about black bodies. And yet, when that history is retold, often omitted are some of the key aspects of their identities and their motivations. What Sunday school teachers teaching black kids about the unconventional Christian theology that Martin Luther King had, and his own doubts, or Amiri Baraka, Toni Morrison, Nella Larson, and James Baldwin. Who's telling kids about those icons? I cannot imagine hearing any of the elders in the church that I grew up in telling me about the meaning of Mississippi Goddamn, let alone talking about the actual title itself. It's much easier to say Nina Simone was a great piano player or a great singer. Langston Hughes wrote great poems. Frederick Douglass made a few great speeches and he helped free the slaves. The pantheon of civil rights voices has systematically been distilled over a generation down to a few speeches about hope and an overall movement grounded in Christian ethos and the love of Jesus. So the Nina Simones, the Baldwins, and the Larsons, and the Hughes, they only offer the pretty bit around the edge of Black liberation. But they too, and so many others, were freedom workers, essential freedom workers, and they deserve honorable mention when we talk about Black history. Beyond that pretty bit around the edge were dissenters, freedom fighters, and Black culture warriors who eschewed conventional Christian overtures to heaven, redemption, obeisance, and faith as a key to black liberation. For whatever reason, many artists, activists, and personalities that I grew up learning about and hearing about and seeing on church fans and pews and Black history posters and classes were presented with a shine and a gloss. It often left me knowing very little about who they actually were, their thinking beyond the catchphrase that was on those fans. I didn't know many things about what arguments they actually made that made them truly controversial and widely known or what beliefs and often the non-beliefs that they held. Sure, white media establishments and institutions don't teach that, but neither did our institutions in many cases. James Baldwin and Lorraine Hansberry come to mind, Langston Hughes, giants that embody this cross-section of black and gay activism, freedom fighting, and free thought. And in some ways, these are the types of people I'm talking about. They've been sanitized, sexually neutered, rounded up to just being good Christian folks who were riling up a few feathers prior to their untimely passings. Are you currently on a faith journey of your own? Are you questioning, seeking to find community in a way that's outside of traditional religious institutions? or reimagining yourself in relationship to your community and your surroundings as a formerly religious person. You're not as alone as you think you are. There are communities and people and organizations that exist to help people like you in your own journey along the way of life in your questions, in humanism, free thought, in social justice, education, LGBTQ advocacy, scholarships, and more. You are absolutely not the only one. There are others like you, and we're organized, we're engaged, We're active, we're protesting, communicating, and we're trying to live healthy lives as best and ethically as we possibly can, and to have a little fun along the way. Learn more about some of these organizations, like the ones that have produced this podcast where we're headed. You can find out more at AmericanHumanist.org and BlackNonBelievers.org. That's the American Humanist Association at AmericanHumanist.org. And on Facebook, search us at Black Nonbelievers of D.C. and Black Nonbelievers at org, Find us online, support today, check us out. Okay, so in the fall of 2019, I went to a building in northwest Washington, D.C., that is the headquarters for the American Humanist Association to see and hear an author speak on Black Freethinkers. His name was Christopher Cameron, and he had just written a book called Black Freethinkers, A History of African-American Secularism. He was giving this speech and detailing the works of Zora Neale Hurston, Frederick Douglass, Richard Wright, Lorraine Hansberry, and a few others, and most of those people I'm familiar with. But Chris's book was different. It gave a lot more context to who these people were and what they contributed to the fabric of thought and art and black civil rights and just going beyond that gloss and shine that i was talking about he covered explicitly non-religious black icons and or openly skeptical basically the things that people don't really talk about much when they mention these writers or these black civil rights icons i read christopher cameron's book and i decided that i wanted to delve into this a little more and shine a light uh, for our community and for communities out there for a representation of who these people really were and to really just amplify Christopher Cameron's research. He's a researcher in North Carolina and we invited him in 2020 during all of the things that were happening with COVID and BLM and George Floyd. And we were a part of a national conversation, the Legacy Program. And the first person that I wanted to have was this author. His name is Christopher Cameron. He joined us as the keynote speaker for the first-ever Legacy Program hosted by Black nonbelievers of DC.
1: Presentation today comes from chapter four of my book, uh, Black Freethinkers, A History of African-American Secularism, which was published uh, last year by uh, Northwestern University Press. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about just sort of how I got into the project, some of the main sources, um, that I use in the book, I'll give a very very brief synopsis of the first three chapters of the book, but I'm going to expound on that in uh, the last talk um, of this series when I give a sort of broad overview um, of the history of Black free thought, uh, and then I'll delve into the civil rights movement, uh, the Black Power movement, and end with a discussion of the Black Arts movement and African American free thought. Um, so I started researching the history of uh, Black free thinkers in 2013. For me, this was both a sort of personal and a scholarly project. Um, so I'm a historian of African American religious and intellectual history. Um, around that time, I was finishing up my first book on African American abolitionists in Massachusetts during uh, the Revolutionary and antebellum periods, and Um, As I was finishing up that book, I was just going through adding um, sources and and, uh, references and things like that, and I was rereading a classic work on African-American religion, um, Albert Raboteau's uh, Slave Religion, which looks at uh, what he calls the invisible institution in the Antebellum South, right? Slaves basically practicing uh, a form of religion that they kind of blended Uh, from Protestantism and their traditional African beliefs and trying to practice that outside of the view uh, of their masters. Um, Now, for for most of the book, Raboteau is discussing um, sort of the rise of Black Protestantism, although he takes some uh, digressions into Black Catholicism. Um, But towards the end, he does have a couple of paragraphs where he discusses atheism uh, among slaves. It's nothing super extensive he gives a couple of examples Uh, but for me this was really intriguing it was the first thing that I'd really read about atheism in the slave community Um, and that kind of pushed me to start doing a lot more research and you know very soon I found the works uh, of Anthony Penn and Sakibu Hutchinson, and found uh, started finding writings of Black free thinkers and about Black free thinkers on sites like the um, uh, African American for Humanisms uh, website, right? Um, so that that sort of kind of got me going. Um, at the same time, though, I was also an atheist at that point for three years, so I was sort of trying to kind of connect uh, with other Black atheists and. Um, you know, in my area, there were very few of them. So I was sort of searching online and this sort of helped me, um, it kind of pointed me to some sources and pointed me to some information about historical black freethinkers that I just hadn't really known much about, right? Um, So I started my research really in um, slave narratives, right? I was very intrigued when I read um, some of Anthony Penn's work, especially his uh, collection, By These Hands, a documentary history of African-American humanism, and he has some uh, information on Frederick Douglass and secular work songs among slaves. So I started thinking to myself, I wonder if I can find any evidence of black secularism and free thought in slave narratives, right? These are usually sources that are traditionally um, used by historians to help explain the rise of African-American religion. In fact, most. Um, studies of black religion during the antebellum period, a lot of them uh, use slave narratives to great effect. I started doing research in them and I actually found a lot of evidence Um, That in the 19th century, atheism arose in uh, slave communities in the South, uh, largely as a response to the rise of pro-slavery religion, right, or theological justifications uh, for the institution of slavery, as well as what enslaved people saw to be sort of the hypocrisy um, of their Christian masters, right? Right. so from there, I uh, just sort of took the story forward, right? I thought, well, what are some other kind of major intellectual or political movements where we might see free thinkers? So after the era of slavery, I started doing some work in the Harlem Renaissance. And I thought to myself, you know, in this day and age, a lot of uh, well educated, at least some of the free thinkers I know, are very sort of well educated, right? um you know maybe educated in science or philosophy or whatnot so I thought let me go and look at and see like who are the kind of intellectuals of the early 20th century what are they saying about religion and I found that a lot of the writers of the Harlem Renaissance period which is what chapter two of the book focuses on uh, a lot of those writers were likewise uh, free thinkers right Langston Hughes um Claude McKay Elaine Locke uh, Zora Neale Hurston, Nella Larson, W.E.B. Du Bois, and, um, there are plenty of sources, right? Uh, archival sources, uh, correspondence, personal papers, uh, novels, right? Nella Larson's Quicksand, which Sakivu Hutchinson um, analyzes in her book, uh, Moral Combat. Also autobiographies. Langston Hughes's autobiography, The Big C, he talks about um, the origins of his non-belief, right? Zora Neale Hurston's uh, autobiography, Dush Tracks on a Road, same thing. Um, So, you know, there are all types of wonderful sources documenting um, the presence and significance of free thought in Black cultural, intellectual, and political life um, during the early 20th century. Now, right around the same time as the Harlem Renaissance, you also have the rise of African-American socialists. Uh, and communists. And I thought to myself, these are, this is a group of people who you're probably very likely to also see free thinkers, right? I'd come across um, Jeffrey Perry's uh, biography of Hubert Harrison, um, and he also has a collection of primary source documents from Harrison, and um, and I thought to myself, you know, if Hubert Harrison is uh, agnostic, right, it's probably the case that other uh, black socialists and communists during this time period are freethinkers, especially because these are political parties that um, among uh, white adherents of socialism and communism are known to be very sort of antithetical uh, to religion. Right, um, the Comintern, the Communist International, in 1926, put out a directive towards uh, communists all across the world, basically saying we expect you uh, to be atheists. Right, that the default position, religious position of communists, uh, is atheist, and that our political philosophy is antithetical to Christianity. Now, for African-Americans, that story would be kind of complicated. Uh, Robin D.G. Kelly in his work Hammer and Ho shows that a lot of Black communists in the South were actually able to sort of use their Christianity and their uh, belief in communism, right? But for black communists in the North, in Chicago, in Detroit, in New York City, um, they're much more likely uh, to be free thinkers, right? So Harry Haywood, one of the leading uh, black communists um, of the 1920s and 1930s, the man who came out with uh, what is known as the black belt thesis, uh, basically saying that African-Americans are a nation within a nation who um, are uh, deserving of self-determination like other nations around the world. Uh, he was um, an agnostic just like Hubert Harrison. Um, others were Louise Thompson Patterson, right? Um, W.B. Du Bois as well. He's somebody who sort of spanned the Harlem Renaissance and socialism and communism. Uh, Richard Wright, Uh, Famed novelist of Native Son was a communist uh, for a while before he eventually kind of threw off communism and embraced uh, existentialism. Right. But a number of leading black intellectuals and radical political activists in the 1920s and 1930s uh, embraced communism. Right. So before even before the civil rights movement, we have a very long and kind of vibrant history uh, of African-American free thought and a a history of free thought uh, really informing. Black intellectual and political life, especially sort of radical um, political life. Now, in the civil rights period, Black free thought would undergo some uh, significant changes. So there are some distinctions between um, the 20s, 30s, and then what we see emerging in the 1960s and 1970s. So for one, um, open discussion of religious skepticism became less taboo during the 60s and 70s. Not that it was completely accepted, right? It's still not necessarily completely accepted today. But it it became a little more sort of acceptable to express uh, your skepticism. People were a little less wary of doing so. So earlier Black free thinkers, aside aside from a few, um, earlier Black free thinkers often waited decades to reveal their doubts um, about Christianity, right? Um, so Du Bois, for example, his autobiography, he didn't really go too too in depth about his own religious views until um, his autobiography was published, actually posthumously right? Um, Langston Hughes or Neil Hurston, they both published their autobiographies in the 1940s, but they were sort of reflecting back on their path towards um, atheism and agnosticism in the 19-teens, right? Um, So it wasn't as common to sort of express your free thought at the time um, prior to the civil rights movement. That's one thing that sort of um, starts to change, right? Um, also, in the 1960s and 70s, with increased access to education, the sheer numbers of Black freethinkers began to rise, right? So Black secularists could be found in um, nearly every major political group and cultural movement during the 60s and 70s, from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to the Black Arts Movement to the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Um, So many of the most prominent black political and cultural figures from the 60s and 70s were free thinkers, including uh, Stokely Carmichael, James Foreman, James Baldwin, Huey Newton, and Lorraine Hansberry. They often denounced Christianity in harsher terms than their predecessors had done. And um, they sort of continued to sort of chip away at the ties between religion, racism and patriarchy in the United States. So their their free thought and their um, political ideology certainly drew from that um, of their predecessors, but it took a new turn that would also inspire a new generation of free thinkers that would come after them, Right, folks like Norm Allen Jr., um, people that would help to sort of institutionalize the movement and create organizations like Black Nonbelievers, Dedicated specifically to advancing um, the cause of Black free thought. Um, so now I want to just very briefly go into the origins of the long civil rights movement and then tie it, um, tie the sort of classical phase of the civil rights movement to secularism before moving into Black power and the Black arts movement. Um, so the civil rights movement uh, has its roots in development stretching back to the early 20th century. Um, And some scholars actually argue that there's really no radical break in black political activity and that rather than looking at the 1960s as the civil rights era, we should see the 1920s to the 1970s as the long civil rights movement. Um, Of course, organization that's come to be uh, sort of most associated with civil rights is the NAACP, uh, which was organized in in 1910 um, but didn't really start to make serious inroads into Jim Crow until the 1920s. And it did so at that point by helping Black activists develop organizational and leadership capacities and slowly chipping away at the myth that Black people were content with second-class citizenship and segregation. Uh, there are some cracks in segregation in the 1930s, due in part to agitation from labor unions um, and liberals fighting New Deal opponents, Um, but the condition of most black people in the country changed little during the decade. However, the 1940s and the onset of World War II would stimulate sort of a new sense of militism, uh, and militancy among African-Americans. So, uh, during World War II, membership in the NAACP would increase about tenfold, um, The Congress of Racial Equality, another major civil rights organization was founded to employ nonviolent direct action uh, to challenge Jim Crow. The first March on Washington was organized by the black agnostic A. Philip Randolph. Um, This was uh, initially organized in 1941, um, but Franklin Roosevelt um, sort of issued an executive order um, outlawing discriminatory practices and hiring by labor unions, and that sort of convinced Randolph to um, hold off on that march. Um, But the rise of Nazism, the decline of imperialism, also led to sort of challenges to racism during the 1940s. Um, So these would culminate in the uh, famous Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954 that outlawed segregation in public schools. But of course, a lot of Black activists felt like this um just didn't go far enough right there's initially a sense of optimism and hope but that really turned to despair as um many racists throughout the country fought the ruling tooth and nail subjecting young black children to racist violence when they tried to enter what had been all white schools so this backlash and lack of results from the ruling convinced many african americans that they had to take more drastic action and could not rely on the courts uh, or politicians. So this is when you get uh, actions like the Montgomery Bus Boycott, uh, which began after Rosa Parks, an NAACP member refused to give up her seat on a segregated uh, bus line. And this would eventually lead to the rise um, of another major civil rights organization, the Southern uh, Christian Leadership Conference, uh, headed by Martin Luther King Jr. So, uh, by uh, the mid 1950s, we've got sort of the big three civil rights organizations CORE, SCLC, and the NAACP. Um, But later in the decade and in the early 1960s, we would see the emergence of um, another organization, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, or SNCC. SNCC grew out of the sit in movement that began at the Woolworth Lunch Counter in Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, in February 1960. Uh, These sort of increased rapidly, expanding across the state and across the Eastern seaboard. Um, And within a couple of months, SNCC would sort of establish itself uh, as a civil rights organization, led primarily uh, by young people, but advised by sort of a veteran civil rights activist, Ella Baker, right? Who's trying to kind of capitalize on a wave of protests. Now, SNCC initially um, sort of adhered to the philosophy of nonviolence, right? It was initially dedicated to kind of Christian principles uh, influenced by um, uh, leaders like James Lawson, who uh, had been a theological student. Um, He had studied Gandhian nonviolence, right? Um, And he sort of insisted on... Uh, sort of nonviolence, right, nonviolent direct action as the basis of SNCC's activity. So um, it was initially very dedicated to Christian principles, but tension sort of existed early on between religious and secular activists uh, in SNCC. Right. Um, Even after the conference in Raleigh in 1960 that established SNCC, many people began to move away from Lawson uh, and the late John Lewis's kind of Christian radicalism. Um, And in 1961, tensions would rise even higher as members debated whether to focus on nonviolent direct action or engage in activities such as voter uh, registration drives. Right. Now, the break from institutional religion uh, would really kind of manifest itself uh, in the life and career of James Foreman, who uh, would become the executive director of SNCC um, in 1961 and would serve in that role until 1966. Um, So he wasn't exactly the top leader, that was the chairman, and John Lewis was the chairman. Uh, until Stokely Carmichael took over and won an election in 1966. But Foreman really ran kind of the day-to-day operations of the organization uh, during that five-year period from 61 to 66. And um, Foreman's political ideology, unlike that of Lawson and John Lewis, was not grounded in Christian theology, but rather in secular humanism. Right. Foreman had begun to move away from uh, religion as a young man. He had some negative experiences um, attending a Catholic school uh, in the mid-1930s. He uh, experienced discrimination there um, because of his race. Um, He also had some negative experiences in um, evangelical black churches uh, during his youth, right? So um, when he was 12, 13 years old, he would go down and visit his grandmother in uh, Concord, Mississippi, um, and really just couldn't get with this sort of fire and brimstone preaching um, at the Concord Baptist Church that his grandmother attended. Um, And in fact, he relates in um, his own autobiography, The Making of Black Revolutionaries, he he relates a scene that's very similar to one that you see in the writings of a number of black free thinkers, namely uh, a moment that's supposed to be his kind of conversion to Christianity, but actually becomes the sort of beginning of his path uh, towards atheism and towards free thought, right? He's he's sitting on the mourners' bench, right up at the front of the church. Uh, there's, you know, it's a revival service. There's basically a lot of pressure um, on everybody on the mourners' bench to convert. So the mourners' bench is basically filled with uh, people who haven't yet accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, right? Um, And in black churches, you're not getting off of that mourner's bench until you're either converted or until you say that you're converted, right? Um, So he's up on there, and he says, the older people shouted that they had got religion. He says, at the age of 12 in a Baptist tradition and setting, I did not have the courage to tell my grandmother that I thought this was all nonsense, I simply observed what had been happening around me and knew that I too could fabricate some tears in this emotionally charged atmosphere. So I covered my face with my handkerchief and cried, Lord, have mercy. It worked. I was taken off the mourner's bench and people talked of how many children got saved that day by the grace of the Lord. Uh, We see this same scene. It's kind of funny, but we see this repeated in uh, the work of Langston Hughes uh, kind of Zora Neale Hurston's autobiography. She doesn't have a scene on the mourner's bench, but sort of a similar experience. Um, James Baldwin as well, and uh, Richard Wright. So this kind of happens again and again. Um, so he already knew around 12 that he didn't believe in the sort of theological ideas being espoused in his church. And his development towards atheism and secular humanism would continue in college right at Wilson Junior College uh, in Chicago in the late 1940s Um, and then later uh, when he's doing a second stint at Roosevelt College um, in Chicago again taking a philosophy course he had to write um, a final paper uh, for his philosophy of religion course and said that God finally died in my conscious mind as he was sort of doing the research uh, for that paper. He said, the most important things I've learned from this class are a number of intellectual arguments which disprove the myth that there is a God. And Foreman wasn't just uh, in Somebody who happened to be an atheist. You know, he wasn't a political figure who happened to be an atheist. He was a political figure who was very much influenced by his atheism. And he felt that his atheism kind of called him uh, to be active politically. Um, and, and he also felt kind of conversely that atheism that um, belief in God was a major factor keeping African Americans in a subordinate position in the United States right He looked around and uh, from his perspective he saw um, a lot of kind of otherworldliness to Black religion. And he thought that um, Black religion uh, promoted sort of disenchantment from the realm of politics. He thought that it was something that was actually hurting African Americans because it was causing them to sort of uh, look towards God uh, for help rather than doing the work and kind of organizing themselves uh, here on earth right? Um, So he began to be politically engaged uh, while he was uh, in college. Uh, And then, like I said, later on would become um, very much sort of involved in uh, in a leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, one of the sort of big four uh, civil rights organizations uh, as of 1960. Um, Now, along with Uh, James Foreman, Stokely Carmichael was another kind of key free thinker um, of the civil rights movement. Um, And both of them together were some of the earliest supporters of Black power kind of as a political ideology and as a political movement. Um, Now, Black power is something that would sort of grow out of um, the traditional civil rights movement, but would also kind of challenge um, that movement in that, you know, Foreman as a, as a leader of SNCC uh, was part of this classical civil rights movement, but would sort of help to inaugurate a transition to black power um, and to this broader um, black power movement. Um, Now, I mentioned Stokely Carmichael as another figure who uh, was a kind of leading uh, intellectual articulating uh, the philosophy of black power. Um, Carmichael was uh, he had grown up in the West Indies uh, for the first 10 years of his life, uh, then lived in the Bronx, um, where he uh, as a teenager attended uh, the Bronx high school of science. Um, and so for him, uh, kind of in a similar fashion to Foreman, um, studying, uh, science, studying philosophy would also lead him, um, to sort of, uh, be able to articulate, um, opposition to ideas of God and traditional Christian theology, right? Um, Uh, Stokely Carmichael would attend Howard University uh, for a short period before also becoming involved with SNCC uh, in the early 1960s, uh, participating in voter registration drives uh, and the like. Um, And together in the mid 1960s, Foreman and Carmichael would help to sort of articulate what black power was. Um, This is a movement that began in 1966 Um, as a way to sort of politically uh, and economically uplift uh, Black communities, right? Um, So Black power sort of, uh, it had a number of different components to it, right? Um, For one, it sort of challenged the sort of nonviolent wing uh, of the civil rights movement and said that African Americans had the right uh, to defend themselves, that the right to use violence, Uh, in defense of their lives. Um, It also emphasized um, black cultural nationalism right? Um, So pride in being Black. Uh, You started to see uh, activists wearing uh, traditional African garbs, right? Uh, Rejecting the notion that you needed to be clean shaven to be a sort of respectable activist, right? Wearing Afros and and things like that, and basically challenging uh, the sort of cultural sensibilities uh, of the United States and of kind of Western culture uh, more broadly. So um, black power would, uh, would be an ideology that would see its institutional uh, expression in uh, the Black Panther Party uh, for self-defense, which was also formed um, in 1966 you know, very shortly after uh, Black Power itself kind of came into vote, right? Um, so the Black Panther Party was formed by uh, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale in 1966. And it was an institution that served to uh, sort of put the political principles of Black Power um, into, uh, into practice, right? So they, they instituted programs like free breakfast for children, right? Um, they, they started health clinics. Um, you know, if Black Power said that, you know, Black people have the right to practice armed self-defense, the Black Panthers practiced armed self-defense. They started this uh, practice called policing the police, Uh, in Oakland, California. Um, This was after uh, a Black man, an unarmed Black man in Oakland was killed in 1966. And um, early members of the Black Panther Party would basically follow around the police. And if they saw them pull over uh, a Black person, they would get out of their cars too. Um, California was an open carry state. They would have their shotguns. Um, you know, strapped around their backs and they would just stand there and make sure that nothing untoward happened uh, in that police encounter uh, with that African-American, right? Um, So in a number of different ways, the Black Panther Party is sort of trying to, um, trying to sort of institutionalize and, and practice the political principles of Black power, right? Now, many of the leading uh, figures in the Black Panther Party were also freethinkers, right? So Huey Newton, um, in his autobiography, Revolutionary Suicide, as well as the number of speeches and essays that he gave, um, notes his own sort of engagement with existentialist philosophy, um, uh, with sort of scientific reasoning, um, and he uh, rejected God. He was an atheist, even though he had sort of grown up in a very devout household and had even considered becoming a preacher uh, like his father um, at one point. Right, uh, Eldridge Cleaver, who was the uh, information minister of the Black Panther Party, in um, in his book "Soul on Ice" notes that he had actually. Um, accepted free thought uh, while he was in prison during the 1950s after reading Thomas Paine's uh, The Age of Reason, right? And he notes a number of of people that he was incarcerated with likewise uh, were atheists, right? Um, David Hilliard was another uh, sort of leading figure of the Black Panther Party uh, to embrace atheism. So generally speaking, the Black Panther Party rejected the sort of classic wing of the civil rights movement that emphasized nonviolent direct action and that based their um, sort of nonviolence on Gandhian principles, but also Christian theology. So they rejected the nonviolence and many of them rejected the Christian theology as well. Now, of course, it's not the case that every Black Panther throughout the United States uh, was an atheist or agnostic, but leading figures, um, both uh, in the national organization based in Oakland, uh, as well as kind of local organizations throughout the United States, especially uh, the chapter in New York City, uh, leading figures of the movement, um, were free thinkers and indeed, um, the organ of the Black Panther Party, right? Its uh, newspaper, the Black Panther, also became a sort of means of um, not only articulating their political principles but also of articulating their free thought, right? So, some of Newton's Um, Speeches where he expresses some of his criticism of Christianity were published uh, in the Black Panther, as well as um, poems and letters uh, expressing uh, sort of disenchantment with Christian theology from um, people like Yvette Pearson and Sarah Webster Fabio, who was sort of a major figure uh, in um, the Black arts movement. Um, So the Black Panther Party is kind of the political expression uh, of Black power, and the Black arts movement would be kind of the cultural and intellectual expression uh, of Black power, and it's also a place uh, where we see uh, intersections with secularism and free thought. Um, so the Black arts movement lasted for roughly 10 years, from 1965 to about 1975, uh, 76. Uh, main themes of the Black arts movement were similar to those of Black power more broadly, right? Black cultural nationalism or celebration um, of Black culture uh, and appreciation for African culture uh, and the literary use uh, of Black music. Writers such as Lorraine Hansberry, James Baldwin, and Nikki Giovanni use their plays, poems, essays, and novels to critique Christianity and to sort of explore the possibilities of Black life without religion. So I'll talk um, primarily about Lorraine Hansberry and uh, about James Baldwin. So uh, Hansberry had grown up in Chicago. Uh, Her father was a pretty prominent um, civil rights activist there. Um, And she moved to uh, New York City in the early 1950s. Um, and she actually developed her political ideology while working with another you know, prominent free thinker and leading black intellectual, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, she uh, worked with Du Bois and Paul Robeson on their anti-imperialist and anti-capitalist uh, publication, Freedom. Uh, this was shortly after she dropped out of college in 1951. Um, she would sort of embrace... Uh, aspects of Simone de Beauvoir's existentialist feminism uh, during the 1950s, um, and would become an agnostic uh, during the course of that decade as well. And her sort of religious opinions are um, expressed kind of indirectly in her famous play, A Raisin in the Sun, as well as directly from uh, her autobiography, To Be Young, Gifted, and Black. Um, so in uh, Raisin in the Sun, we see um, Hansberry's sort of anti-religious views reflected in uh, the character Benetha. Um So the play came out in 1959. It was a pretty uh, instant success. It's set in the south side of Chicago sometime between the end of World War II uh, and 1959. Uh, and the action revolves uh, around the uh, younger family shortly after the death of the patriarch, Walter Younger Sr. Um, The family's waiting on life insurance money and sort of deciding uh, what's going to be done with the funds, right? Walter Younger Jr. has a number of kind of dubious business schemes that he wants to use the money for, uh, while Mama uh, wants to sort of use the money to buy a house, as well as to support the medical career of her daughter, Benita. Um, Benita is a modern woman who embraces feminism, anti-colonialism, and atheism. Many people urge her to marry her middle-class suitor, George Murchison, but she decides to wait until her schooling is complete, putting her career ahead of middle-class domesticity. And this is one kind of theme that we see uh, in the writings of Black women freethinkers is sort of an intersection of their free thought uh, with feminism, with challenges to patriarchy and to notions of kind of what uh, a traditional Black family should look like uh, and should be. Right At one point in the play, Mama remarks to Benita that she'll be a doctor if God wills it, and Benita replies, God hasn't got a thing to do with it. She goes on to express her frustration that God gets all the credit for human achievements, asking whether or not God would be paying her tuition. Um, And we know that Benita is expressing Hansberry's own sentiments because she said very clearly in an interview with Mike Wallace shortly after the play came out, uh, Benita is me eight years ago. So for Hansberry, human beings have the capacity uh, for morality through the use of reason, and they do not need to believe in God in order to be uh, good people. Um, now, another leading writer of uh, the Black arts movement and of the 1960s and 1970s in general uh, was James Baldwin, right? You can even look at him as kind of one of the leading, if not the leading, uh, writer of uh, the 20th century, at least among African Americans. And um, Baldwin's secular views are expressed in a number of different mediums, Right. His uh, autobiographical work, The Fire Next Time, uh, in multiple novels, uh, plays like Blues for Mr. Charlie, right? Um, as well as in TV interviews uh, that he gave um, and in debates that he had uh, with uh, other leading Black intellectuals and political figures. Um, In The Fire Next Time, Baldwin um, discusses his experiences as a teenage preacher in a Pentecostal church in Harlem during the 1940s. He was a preacher for uh, three years, from uh, 14 years old uh, to 17 years old. Um, And he, he writes about sort of Uh, how he eventually came to view preaching as really sort of fake and as something that, for him at least, wasn't based on true devout beliefs, but was really kind of a form of theater. In fact, he says being in the pulpit uh, was like being in the theater. He says, I was behind the scenes and I knew how the illusion worked. I knew how to work on a congregation until the last dime was surrendered. Right. And eventually, at the end of uh, his three years, he um, he came to feel that religion like James Foreman, he came to feel that religion really promoted an otherworldly disenchantment from the political sphere. Right. He says, um, by the end of that three years, it took all that I had not to stammer, uh, not to curse um, not to tell my parishioners to get up off their knees and go and organize a rent strike um, or some other form of political activity, right? Um, so Baldwin eventually adopted a secular humanist uh, perspective and he came to believe that Christianity would not be an effective tool for achieving racial equality and a political power for black people. Um, So we see that during the civil rights era, free thought is really um, is growing considerably uh, among African-Americans. Free thought is having a major impact on the course of both the civil rights and the black power movements. We've traditionally seen the civil rights movement as a religious one because of the prominence, Uh, of figures like Martin Luther King Jr., not only in historical studies, um, but also in popular culture. Now, as the historian Barbara Savage notes in uh, her 2008 book, Your Spirits Walk Beside Us, the fact that we've come to see this movement as a religious one could be seen as a miracle in and of itself, right? Because if we actually look at the um, number of churches uh, number of Black churches that participated in the movement is very few, much lower than we would think. Uh, she estimates that less than 10% um, of Black churches during the 1950s and 60s actually engaged in overt civil rights organizing. Now, this isn't to sort of completely discredit um, or discount the influence of African American religion in the civil rights movement. We know that um, there was an important kind of social gospel strain in black religion. Uh, Black religious figures and lay people were, you know, obviously very prominent uh, in the movement. Churches served uh, as organizing and meeting spaces. But to date, I think we have kind of discounted and ignored the opposite side of that story, namely the importance and the prominence Um, of free thinkers in this movement as well, not only in the Black Power Movement and in the Black Panther Party, but also in some of the kind of traditional organizations uh, of the civil rights movement, like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And if we just kind of go through some of the names that I've mentioned today, right, Huey Newton, uh, Eldridge Cleaver, James Foreman, Stokely Carmichael, James Baldwin, uh, Lorraine Hansberry, W.E.B. Du Bois, these aren't really like fringe people that we don't really know anything about, right? These are kind of leading Black intellectuals, leading political activists, who grounded their political activity and forming new organizations and writing novels and plays uh, and contributing to the black arts movement and the black power movement. They grounded all of this activity in their secular perspective and they helped advance uh, secularism for African-Americans and just secularism uh, in the United States in general. So, um, Along with seeing the civil rights movement as a religious one, I think we also need to see this as an important moment uh, for the secular movement uh, in the United States and as a key moment in African-American secularism. One that I, uh, like I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, would really influence a new generation of free thinkers uh, that emerged in the 1970s and 1980s and that would kind of contribute to one of the most important developments in the history of Black free thought, namely its institutionalization, uh, beginning in nineteen eighty nine with the formation of African Americans for Humanism, uh, and continuing to this present day.
0: That was Professor and Dr. Christopher Cameron, author of Black Freethinkers, African Americans in Secular Humanism, who was joining us in our first legacy program. We'll rejoin him throughout the following episodes. And while we're on it, just to be fair, Black free thinkers have held a wide array of religious opinions ranging from deism to paganism, atheism and agnosticism. But what has united them is a commitment to reason, improving life in this world and to challenging racial inequity. That'll be all for today. But thanks for listening, and join us for the next episode of Where We're Headed. Where We're Headed is brought to you in part by the American Humanist Association at AmericanHumanist.org, Black Nonbelievers of DC, an affiliate of BlackNonbelievers.org, and recorded and produced by the Phoebe Music Group. Find us online and support today.